Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Welcome to the broadcast and thank you for coming along. Advertising is part of our world. It affects everything. We use it in our language. We pick up phrases, catch phrases from advertisements, and they become part of our conversation. It is very difficult to imagine life without advertising or really to know what it would be like. I had a little look at that, just a glance, if you will, uh, in the old days of the Soviet Union. If you ever happened to be behind the Iron Curtain, which I was a few times as a journalist, you noticed how bleak everything was. Everything looked, the cities looked drab because there were no enlivening advertisements. There were, or very few, they were, those that there were were exhorting workers to produce more and there weren't that many of those. And now, if you go to Moscow or to any of the cities that once lay behind the Iron Curtain, they look very much like cities anywhere in the world, enlivened by advertising. To talk about advertising and its impact on our life and how it works, we have one of the iconic figures in the advertising industry, Alan Kay. Alan, welcome to the broadcast. Tell us who you are and why you are iconic. Um, hi, I'm very happy to be there, here, and uh, I don't much like to talk about myself. I was just very fortunate to work with really intelligent clients that uh, bought good work, as they say, and um, it, just in short, what other people say about me is I'm in two advertising halls of fame. Um, I have a commercial that was one of the best 25 in the 20th century. I was um, chosen as one of the people that influenced technology marketing most in the last quarter of the last century. Um, I've continually had a spot on the 10 best Super Bowl commercials. Um, and those are kind of just the lowlights. Uh, tell me about uh, the, 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 this advertisement, which you, you just referred to. The Xerox Monk commercial, which is credited by many as starting the Super Bowl as the arena for new breakthrough commercials, um, as well as if you see something, say something, the anti-terrorism campaign that I came up with um, on 9-12, the day after 9-11, that uh, reportedly has saved tens of thousands of lives. I would say Let's that take those sequentially. Let's have a look at the Xerox commercial, which was in the Super Bowl in 1976, known as the Father Dominic commercial. Very famous. Let's have a look at it. Ever since people started recording information, there's been a need to duplicate it. Very nice work, Brother Dominic. Thank you. Very nice. Now, I would like 500 more sets. Brother Dominic, how are you? Could you do a big job for me? The Xerox 9200 duplicating system, unlike anything we've ever made, 
feeds and cycles originals, has a computerized programmer that controls the entire system, can duplicate, reduce, and assemble a virtually limitless number of complete sets, and does it all at an incredible two pages per second. Here are your sets, Father. The 500 sets you asked for. It's a miracle. Your other great one, perhaps, was more recent, which was after 9-11, when you came up with, if you see something, say something. What was the genesis of that? That is something which, as you just said yourself, saved enormous number of lives. Tell a policeman, tell the FBI, tell someone, and uh, disaster is averted. How did you come up with that so soon after 9-11? Okay, 9-11, horrible day in history. Um, I saw it, our office building was just up Fifth Avenue from the disaster. And uh, it, it, it was horrible. I was beyond upset, just like, like everybody else, shocked in disbelief. Um, and the next day, I, I said I had to do something, as everybody felt that way. And the only thing that I know how to do well is advertising. So I said, okay, what can I do that can help the situation? And I thought that if I'm gonna come up with anything, I wanna come up with um, an ounce of prevention, something that would be lasting, not just something that uh, was, was kind of nationalistic. We're Americans, great. That would make people feel good for the moment. I wanted to do something that would make people feel good for a long, long time. So I was thinking that um, Americans, particularly New Yorkers, are, are very um, immune to the situation. They really that we're, we're caught never to look in somebody's eyes when you're walking up down. And uh, as opposed to Israel, where unfortunately, bombings and things happen, they're always alert. So I thought, what, what could I do to wake Americans up and be aware of their surroundings um, just in case they, they spot something abnormal? And I, I said, well, what would I want to tell them? And I said, I would want to tell them, if you see something, say something. Okay. That sounded right. I took my little three by five card. I wrote down, if you see something, say something. And I said, okay, that's the campaign. And- Who was the client? You have to have a client in order to make an advertisement. No client at all. That was- oh, Okay. Okay. I just, I did it for me. I wanted it to be a gift from the advertising community. Um, I'm on the board of um, both the forays and the ad council. And they, um, I told actually the president of the four A's about the idea uh, the next day. And he said, oh, great. Did you get your invitation yet? The ad council is going to have a meeting of all agency CEOs to see if we can come up with something. He said, you already have. <laughs> so I said, great. So went to the meeting. People spoke. I said my piece. I showed the campaign. Um, the president, uh, the CEO, actually, of the Ed Council, um, Peg Conlon, 
um, said, oh, that's wonderful. I have an appointment next week with the Justice Department. I'll present it to them. And I, I think this is going to be great. So she presented to the Justice Department and they wanted to have nothing to do with it. Uh, they said, oh, we don't need anything like that. And, you know, what is this about? And, you know, what if somebody calls? Well, kind of that's the idea. But anyway, so she was turned away. And uh, then I, I was very intense about this thing. And I became like the ancient mariner. And I told anyone that would listen about the campaign and even people that wouldn't listen, <laughs> I told, include, including government officials, CEOs of companies, even my own clients. And no, no body went for it at all. And it took uh, exactly nine months when the MTA of New York, who was the client of ours for 11 years at the time, MTA is the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, and th they run all the trains, right, subways, right. buses of New York. Um, and they, they called and they said, you know, do you still have that see something, say something campaign, or has anyone picked it up? I said, no, as a matter of fact, it's still in my computer. So they said, would you mind if uh, we use it? I said, mind, I would love it. Uh, I've been dying to get it out there. They said, well, their management decided they really needed a security campaign and we knew you had this. Um, so can we get together and we'll produce it and run it? I said, great. Um, so that's exactly what we did. The, I think it was kind of interesting they did some research first to make sure there was no backlash, that it wouldn't like scare people and keep them away from the subways. Uh, it, and it was just the opposite. The people in the research, the respondents said, this is a wonderful thing for them to do. Um, we know that, that their police and officials can't be everywhere. We now have um, six million pair of eyes looking out for each other. And subway ridership actually increased um, after the campaign broke. It, uh, on its own steam, it went global. The, that, in fact, the week that it first started running, the, in Australia, in Perth, they put up a big banner going across. It was about five tracks in the Perth train station with a huge, if you see something, say something, the way I designed it my font, which I wanted it, my typeface, which I wanted it to be very clear and simple and easy to read, no shenanigans or fancy stuff. Um, and I was shocked, I saw it in the paper and <laughs> the, uh, I mean, so overwhelmed uh, by it. Um, today it's used by over 150 in, um, institutions you know, around the world. And uh, it's unfortunately, it's still going strong. As I think, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, another terrorist attack, which, uh, you know, unfortunately, the world has many problems. Alan, Alan let me stop you a minute. How did sure. you, how do you calculate the lives saved by that advertisement? Um, I have a, a friend who was uh, in the FBI and he, 
told me off the record and didn't seem like such a big secret. Uh, so that's how I found out inside info inside information. And how uh, how important are slogans? That is a slogan. Yes, it it, it is. Uh, we see slogans in in politics. We see a lot of that. We also see particular phrases which. Uh, uh, particularly, for example, in presidential inaugural speeches, uh, we, that the that the president hopes will go into the language, become part of his legacy, like New Frontier or or with Bush, with uh, Biggie Noonan's uh, uh, make a kind of gentler America. Um, every major speech by a politician, in it, the speechwriter has put a phrase that he or she hopes will move into the language, will have a life bigger than the speech. It doesn't always happen, but it does sometimes. Uh, slogans are important, and we cannot at this time ignore one of the most potent political slogans we have heard, which is, make America great again. It's a very potent political slogan. Was, do you know anything about its origin? Was it designed by an ad agency? Was, did it come to President Trump in his sleep? How do we get that? Um, we got that from a speech by Ronald Reagan. said those exact words. That's uh, where it was picked up. And I saw the video that, uh, that did that. Reagan said it first. Take us inside an advertising agency. Here we have a product. For example, you had Stuart Weissman's shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, shoes, the shoes are shoes. How do you go and sell more of one kind of shoe? You, you, we're inside the agency. Presumably, you have the client, you've been engaged to do this job. What do you do then? Do you present 20 ideas, 100 ideas, one idea? Okay. Well, it, it starts with input from the client, uh, understanding what their objectives are, and uh, then we go back and we think, we use our heads. And using what the client tells us is kind of the framework, that's the impetus for the idea. In the case of Stuart Weitzman, he, uh, he is a very talented shoe designer, very successful. And he was, at, at that time, he had just opened a store on Madison Avenue asked us to introduce it, hired us to introduce it. Um, it went very, very well. And then he decided he wanted to go into uh, the major fashion magazines. Um, and he wanted a campaign for that, a national big campaign. So in speaking with him and knowing him and his advertising people, um, what they wanted to do was separate him from all of the other designers out there that uh, had become corporations. They wanted to give Stuart, uh, and so did he, a personality that stood out from the rest, kind of non-fashion advertising. We call it out of category. And uh, Corey Kay, which is the name of my company, uh, was known for that. Any category that we were in was unlike everything else. So, in fact, one client one time said, uh, oh, actually, I, you know, I have to say your advertising sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> he said, thank you very much. Uh, 
best compliment I could imagine. Uh, so the thought was then, how do we turn um, a designer into a personality different than the others? And one thing that made Stuart special is his whole life was revolved around shoes. His father was in the shoe business. He took over the business and um, he lived a dream spoke of nothing but shoes. Uh, so he said, that's if we could capture that. So um, I was thinking about that, just not working, just I, I think all the time I have that, it's a curse actually. Um, and I had a picture in my head of a, um, of a shoe dress that, that Stuart sees the world like everything relates to shoes, the world according to Stuart Weitzman. So as I saw in my imagination um, a dress that looked like a shoe. And I, I sketched it on a little, my three by five, and um, I showed it to Stuart and I said, the theme is gonna be a little obsessed with shoes where everything you see is in the form of a shoe. So, and I showed him my little three by five. He said, oh, that's, that's great, I love it, but um, I can't do it. And I said, why? He said, because it's, it's a one-shot ad. It's not a campaign. I can't think of a second ad. And I looked at him and I said, Stuart, you're not supposed to, that's my job. And eight years later and some 30 plus ads, Stuart was still a little obsessed with shoes. I like, I like the one which we have uh, of the dog. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, I find very appealing. Tell me, uh, humor is part of your your stock in trade. Does humor sell products? Absolutely. We all know the very funny advertisements, for example, yeah. from Geico. Does that actually cause people to buy more insurance? Yeah. Um, good humor does, intelligent humor. Um, put in the wrong hands, it could be disastrous. I, I equate it to... Um, a hammer, it can build a house to break a window. I use advertising to build houses. Um, I have certain things that I've developed over the years about humor, and that is it's to make a point, not a joke. And if, you, if anyone is familiar with my work, um, when you see the humor, it all relates to a product benefit, and it relates to life experiences that other people can identify with. Um, myself and my um, partner, who, who passed away in 1990, uh, we were inspired by humanity, that all of our advertising has um, what, what we call a sense of human. And um, there are some people that don't understand humor in advertising. Um, I think mainly because they don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, and I've always had to defend it uh, because that was uh, very, very key to our successful um, ads. And um, we did some, uh, we found a study actually that said that um, intelligence and humor, sense of humor are parallel to one another. And the more intelligent you are in general, um, the keener your sense of humor. And I had used that with um, 
uh, Lois and myself, we handled Xerox for 11 years during their Salcyon period from 1971 to 1982. And the hallmark of their advertising was humor. When we, when we even did our first Xerox ad, the uh, business advertising was, fo they followed the leader, they followed IBM, and it was all very cold and monolithic and very antipathetical to what we did. So we brought um, our feelings to business to business advertising. And um, that's, that was one of the reasons that I was selected as one of the people who um, change influence technology marketing most uh, because bringing this uh, humanity, which I called humanology into business advertising Tell me the difference between print advertising, for example, uh, a lot of the shoe advertisements I imagine were print for magazines like Vogue and uh, Cosmopolitan, uh, and then Xerox was, became famous as a television series, uh, <clears throat> and then you have radio advertising. These are all different mediums and require different treatments. Uh, is the same, is same creative uh, juices, uh, do they work for all of them or do you have to have really different people doing radio or doing print or doing television? No, uh, media is simply an execution of an idea. It's the idea that matters and if the idea is solid, it translates very easily into television or print or outdoor. It has to be um, very simple very clear, um, pertinent, and that's what makes it good advertising. And it doesn't matter whether it's in skywriting or a display, tiny display ad, um, computer, um, it's just the medium. And skywriting, what, skywriting is what you used for Virgin Atlantic, right? Let's have a look at that. What was special about that advertisement? Well, um, we got Virgin Atlantic before they had the right to fly. Richard Branson uh, leased a 747, uh, brilliant, brilliant move. We had interviewed a PR person because we were going to start a PR division, um, spent the morning with her. She said, excuse me, I have to go. I have um, a meeting with somebody who wants to start an airline here. Um, she left at about one o'clock. We got a call from David Tate, who was their general manager, very, very smart advertising marketing man. And he said, uh, he just had lunch with Candace Leeds and all she talked about was Corey Kay. And I'm here actually to sign up a PR firm. At the same time, I'm gonna be looking at agencies might come over. Um, we said, yes, we were brand new, just still in diapers, so to speak. So we looked at our calendar, which was wide open. If you asked me, think we could squeeze you in at about three o'clock. He said, I'll be there. Um, three o'clock, there was a ring at the door. We were working out of a townhouse and we opened the door. He said, hello, I'm an airline. He was, he was Virgin Atlantic. Um, so in, in speaking with him, we showed him our reel. We always ran on our record. We um, had been in the business quite a long time and had a very good trail of successes. 
Um, we show him our reels, as you said, very humorous, very pointed. And he, after he saw it, he said, um, excuse me, may I use your phone? We said, sure. So he got up and he went over to the desk, start, pulled out a piece of paper, started to dial. He said, um, I have appointments for the rest of the week with five agencies and I have to call and cancel because I just hired one. That's a great story. How difficult is it to get an idea? Most business people are not in the ideas world in the creative sense. You're an artist. You have a history as an artist. I think your mother was an artist. Uh, you have a long history in the arts, but a lot of people running businesses do not. How do they react to some of your ideas? How do you sell an idea? I don't sell, I tell. And if they're intelligent, and open and um, have a, a semblance of humanity, which many business people don't. don't. Uh, my partner, Lois Corey, used to say, it's something about the tie. On the weekend, they're a normal person and they watch TV and they like the same commercials that everybody else does. But when they come to work, they put on the tie and suddenly it chokes off just enough oxygen to uh, take them away from being a, um, a consumer and turns them into a businessman. Uh, so what I do, there, there are people that get it and people that don't get it. Those people that we're, we're a lo love-hate um, kind of company that people, when they see our stuff, generally they hire us by the time they get to the elevator. Others can't wait to get to the elevator and get the hell out. <laughs> that sounds very your one of the, your predecessors in the Hall of Fame of advertising was David Ogilvy, who believed in very straightforward advertising. He believed basically and hit them over the head several times. Um, and uh, uh, how do you feel about that? He, he the other thing about Ogilvy, it was himself a very interesting man, is that he believed that advertising was dying because store brands would push it out. Well, that never happened. Uh, but how do you feel about David Ogilvy as an advertising okay. thinker? Um, I think he did a lot of very good advertising. I think he set a lot of trends. Um, I think he was very rigid. And um, toward the end, he changed a lot of his ideas. For example, he used to push celebrities. And, and many of his clients, he would have them hire celebrities. And uh, I saw an interview later on where he said he realized that was a big mistake because people remembered the celebrity and not the product and uh, the celebrity would overshadow the product and unless a celebrity if there's a reason for a celebrity where um, it's something believable I mean you see these celebrities driving a, uh, a car there's no way with that that person owned that car. You just know it. We've come to that point where the elevator is about to go. <laughs> the elevator you mentioned, you've got to get on it because we're out of time. We thank you very much, Alan Kay, for sharing your secrets with us. And we look forward to asking you back on the program at some time in the future. Until then, all the best. That's our show for today. Time for us to resume our lives of isolation. And please, when you go out, wear a mask. It may save your life 
and save somebody else's life as well. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.